Welcome to Then and Now, brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy. We are dedicated to studying change in order to make change, linking knowledge of the past to the quest for a better future. Every week, we interview thought leaders, historians, researchers, and policymakers about what happened then and what that means for us now. Welcome to Then and Now, a new podcast sponsored by the Luskin Center for History and Policy at UCLA. I'm Catherine Marino. I teach in the UCLA History Department, and I'm a friend of the Luskin Center. The goal of the center is to bring the past into conversation with the present, and in doing so to understand how we got where we are so that we can imagine alternative and better futures. Our guest today is Leandra Zarnow, Assistant Professor of History at the University of Houston in Texas where she teaches about U.S. women's history and women's gender and sexuality studies more broadly, and about U.S. politics, law, and social movements. Recently, Leandra Zarno published an excellent biography of Bella Abzug called Battling Bella, the Protest Politics of Bella Abzug. It came out in November with Harvard University Press, and this biography explores the life and work of the larger-than-life lawyer, three-term U.S. representative from New York, and feminist leader, Bella Abzug, during the height of her influence from 1968 to 1976. Zarnow says that in her day, Abzug was the most recognizable woman in politics. And at a time when only 14 of the 435 House members were women, she was also really one of the most recognizable figures in the 1970s. She was well known for her wide-brimmed hats that became her trademark but she was also a really diligent behind-the-scenes organizer who took bold and important political stances. Zarnow's biography explores the social justice and feminist politics that motivated her career, exploring her deep roots in Jewish, feminist, pacifist, and anti-racist organizing. And in so doing, Leandra Zarnow really positions Bella Abzug as a forerunner of today's resistance politics that we've really seen in the wake of the 2016 presidential election emerged. And as a precursor to the political leaders like Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and other women in Congress who've been pushing the Democratic Party to the left. As we speak today, um, June 11th, 2020, in the midst of a historical conjuncture of social movement Uh, resistance, protests against police brutality and anti-Black violence sweeping the nation and the world, and in a pivotal election year in which women are um, running in record numbers for U.S. Congress and statewide elections, it's a particularly important time to remember this history of Bella Abzug. So Professor Zarnow, thanks so much for joining us today. Well, Thank you, Catherine. First off, I just want to um, have on a personal note mentioned that uh, Catherine was in graduate school at Stanford University when I was a postdoc. And so it's really a thrill to be on Then and Now with you and with Catherine's acclaimed book, Feminism for the Americas, also recently out. So I hope we you know, connect upon um, our, our uh, research that is definitely um, intertwined. So Bella Abzug really was a legend in my family. I grew up in Southern California in Escondido actually. And for my parents who were quite progressive minded, politically active people, um, she loomed large. And my father actually by chance marched in the 1970 Women's Strike for Equality where he heard Bella Abzug speak. He had been visiting relatives in New York City and they were members of NOW and they basically 
you know, strong-armed him to join their uh, demonstration, but it wasn't very hard to do so because he was an organizer for Students for Democratic Society in the Vietnam Vets Against the War. My mother also uh, went to Evergreen in Washington and was part of a cooperative there and um, also involved in anti-domestic violence uh, work uh, as a, working at a shelter early on. So they definitely... Um, followed in this progressive tradition that Bella Abzug uh, was a major figure. Uh, Bella Abzug passed away in 1998. That was my second year at Smith College. And I worked at the Sophia Smith Collection, which is an incredible women's history uh, archive, and helped prepare the Gloria Steinem papers for public researchers. And so as a you know, second year um, student, uh, basically I was um, putting an alphabetical order correspondence A through Z and happened to come across one letter that was signed Bella. And this collection had already been picked over for notables. So this was quite a discovery. And I thought it was just really interesting to have, to have this really personal note between um, Bella Abzug and Gloria Steinem. I really forgot about her though, until I um, started graduate school at UC Santa Barbara and I was in hot pursuit of a dissertation topic. And so in those days, in the early 2000s, what do you do? You go to the library and you go to the stacks. And I looked at the HQ section, which is a designation for women's studies. And I looked for any book that caught my eye. And a title jumped out at me, What Women Want. So I had to pick it off the shelf and I discovered the 1977 National Women's Conference which was initially you know, intriguing to me. Didn't know that Marjorie Sproul was writing her book on this conference at the time um, and you know, thought I was gonna write about uh, the conference, but soon became enthralled by Bella Abzug, who was a presiding officer of this um, conference. And I found out that it was one of her last and greatest acts in um, Congress. She was a three-term Congress uh, woman in the early 70s. And, one of her last acts was to shepherd through the law that designated the federal funding for this, um, this conference and set the planning wheels in motion. And so for those of you um, who don't know about the Women's Conference, uh, it was the only federal women's uh, conference in U.S. history and the most diverse gathering of American women to that point. So this was quite a feat to accomplish, um, you know, brought in over 150,000 people uh, that were officially involved at uh, state and territorial meetings. And then 2,000 delegates came to Houston, um, where I now teach, and um, descended upon the city in November 1977 to uh to basically fulfill the legal obligation through this, this um, policy to, uh, to um, pass a national plan of action that was presented to President Jimmy Carter in 1978. And so this was the US answer to the United Nations International Women's Year Initiative and the large gathering that happened in Mexico City in 1975. And the United States was among the few nations who didn't have a, um, a conference before 1975. And so we wanted to make sure that um, we would set, you know, set the tone for a human rights agenda afterwards. Gloria okay. Steinem calls I this. Wanna, I just wanted to jump in because I, I wanted to um, sort of help refresh also readers or listeners um, memories and understandings of, of how significant Abzug's work in Congress even before this, this pivotal conference was. Um, and I love hearing about your personal connection, um, Abzug, and the fascinating ways in which your um, life intertwined with her and her. the book spoke to you about the 77 conference, and that's how you decided yeah. to write this. I, um, 
I mean, it's helpful too to think about the um, the early seventies when you point out she was a congresswoman. Um, this was this moment of transformative legal and and legislative change in terms of women's rights. You know, Abzug is known for her quip, we put sex discrimination provisions into everything. So you have Title IX coming out at that time. Congress is passing the Equal Pay Act, the ERA. Um, could you just tell us a little bit about what you deem to be some of Abzug's most important accomplishments uh, in this early, in this period? Yeah, absolutely. So I definitely lead it with the National Women's Conference because I do see that as one of her um, kind of crowning achievements yes. in Congress. Right. But she came in really as a feminist trailblazer who reshaped the path for women in politics thereafter. And, you know, she ran on the slogan, A Woman's Place is in the House of, the House of Representatives. Right. She really thought, uh, you know, she modeled her life as inter, as an intersectional life that she lived and she was pass, passionate for full throttle advocacy of social justice. Feminism was part of a larger package of um, interests that included economic justice, gay civil rights, um, environmentalism, um, kind of bringing resources back to urban spaces. Uh, you know, so this is really a full intersectional purpose. And she came to the, you know, feminist movement um, organically, um, you know, and really started to incorporate uh, the, the passions and the interests of women's liberation into her, um, her program that I would say primarily was, um, you know, focused actually on ending the war in Vietnam and on economic justice issues first. So gender comes into play you know, as a result of, um, you know, the buoyancy of the women's liberation movement and the impact it had on her. Um, and also a longstanding interest in uh, intersectional uh, interest in, in gender rights that she also, you know, put to the foreground um, in the disarmament movement, which she really came out of. Uh, so she pushed for gender parity and peace, um, you know, prior to this point. So I would say that if you're thinking about her, um, you know, largest accomplishments. She was a forerunner in Congress in leading a legal feminist, um, you know, program that focused on equal pay for equal work. It focused on universal childcare as a as a goal. Um, you know, it focused on um, a guaranteed income for all all people. Uh, you know, really thought about um, you know equal uh, having women gain um, opportunities to have their own credit cards and their bank accounts, so economic independence. Uh, you know, she really thought about uh, all of the different ways in which um, the law was, in fact, discriminatory uh, towards women. And, and so, so 1970s is really a landmark moment uh, for um, women's rights legislation uh, that I would say is the, is the gender equivalent of what we saw for racial civil rights in the early 1960s with the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. Right. Thank you. And that is such a profound part of the book's argument is that Absug was really um, both a for you know pivotal in making this this movement happen, and also that she really did demonstrate this intersectional feminist and legal vision that was ahead of its time. Um, and you point out also how many of Absug's goals that were deemed radical were really blueprints of sorts for activists today. Getting back to the intersectionality and the way that she. Um, you know, in a came to sort of thinking through issues around gender. Um, 
intersectionally, I wondered if you could talk to us about um, her defense of Willie McGee in the early 1950s. Um, you wrote a great prize-winning article about this called Braving Jim Crow to Save Willie McGee, Bella Abzug, The Legal Left and Civil Rights Innovation. Um, I think it's particularly relevant in this moment we're in right now. Could you just explain uh, what this case was and why Abzug's role in it was important? Sure. Thank you, Catherine, for asking about this. I think, you know, as many of us have really been um, trying to come to grips with George, Floyd, George Floyd's death uh, this past week, I've been thinking a lot about the Willie McGee case. You know, this history of lynching is such a fraught and disgusting part of our history that continues. And I think the prevalence of police brutality in the 21st century would have devastated but not surprised Bella Absog. So in this Willie McGee case, she was in her late 20s, a really green lawyer, and she made the remarkable choice of traveling to the South for the first time to represent Willie McGee. Uh, Willie McGee was an African-American veteran who had been accused of raping a white woman named Willetta Hawkins, and talk of the town was that they were engaged in, in an extramarital affair. Um, you know, this is a he said, she said case. There's a lot of like holes in the legal record, um, but Bella Abzug truly believed that her client was innocent. And Mickey's first trial ended with a guilty verdict delivered in two and a half minutes in Mississippi, which um, meant death by electric chair for African-American men. So she was recruited to um, go down and find local counsel for a retrial, which did not end much better than his first trial. And subsequently, she defended Willie McGee on a team of lawyers um, during his appeal. And what I found so surprising um, was that she brought gender into this, to the civil rights defense as much as race. And so she argued that rape law was misused to police the sexual color line. And she, so she presented this kind of gendered argument at the same time she presented a race-based argument that noted um, through statistics that she um, had, you know, had uh, researched that African-American men faced unequal sentencing in rape cases. So this was huge for Abzug. It was her first chance to argue, um, or she thought she was hoping to game, game to argue at the Supreme Court. They decided not to actually listen to the case, but, but the case became known the world over, uh, not, unlike, not unlike George Floyd's case. And um, at the same time, for Abzug personally, she faced her first death threat she faced a miscarriage during the case when um, shortly thereafter, she had uh, stayed up all night in a bus stall uh, waiting um, to defend Willie McGee uh, the next day because no uh, hotels would house her. Uh, and um, the Willie McGee case really filled the first pages of her very extensive FBI file. So yeah, so McGee was executed um, in May 1951. It's, it's tragically, you can actually uh, listen to um, the execution that aired as, as if a, a sporting event on a local newscast. And so there was an excellent story by NPR's Radio Diaries a few years back that um, has a clip of the tape if you're interested in knowing more about it. This was a legal lynching. And, you know, Bella Absa was actually not on the scene during the execution because she made one last ditch legal maneuver to stall the execution. This death shook her to the core um, she hung his portrait in her home. She told her staff about it during Congress. She reflected in an oral history. I later, I realized that there was something so terribly, terribly wrong with our democracy. Mm. How does it connect later to what she did in, um, in Congress and thereafter? Well, I want to actually go past Congress and talk about when she ran for mayor in 1977 in New York City. And she was at, uh, leading in the polls until the blackout and looting that happened that summer. And she uh, 
advocated for an overhaul of the criminal justice and policing system to focus on rehabilitation over imprisonment and to pour resources back into neighborhood social services and looting. So we kind of hear the remnants of those, that kind of um, response to uh, you know, these types of skirmishes that we've been seeing in the last couple of weeks. Um, unfortunately, she really shifted and went down in the polls after that point, and um, her longtime nemesis, nemesis in Congress, Ed Koch, won that election, championing a law and order style crackdown. Mm-hmm. So I think that is something that we should remember. Absolutely. Thank you for drawing those connections. It's really um, so important and relevant today. Um, I want to also touch on a a history that I think few people know about, um, who are not historians at least, is the the fact that she was really instrumental in pushing childcare legislation through Congress, but then um, it was actually vetoed by Nixon. And in this moment today, when all sorts of activists are calling for um, you know, child care legislation, pointing out the way that the U.S. falls behind globally in terms of being one of the few um, countries that does not have such legislation. I uh, just wondered if you could could talk a little bit about that. Absolutely. Thanks for asking. Um, you know, Bella Abzug really depended on child care. Um, she had an African-American woman named Alice Williams who lived with her since her daughters were infants in their infancy. And that was what that kind of labor um, that was provided to her, uh, this reproductive, you know, labor essentially, um, was the reason that Bella Abzug was able to be a working mother and for- forge a career as a cause lawyer. And she was very aware of that. Um, she brought uh, child care support into her campaign headquarters. So anyone who was volunteering there could drop off their children on the second floor um, of her um, campaign, first campaign headquarters and, and all of them thereafter. Um, so it was a no-brainer for her to uh, team up with um, Shirley Chisholm, Representative Shirley Chisholm of Brooklyn, who was really the initial driving force in Congress on the child care issue. Um, and so they together uh, you know, pursued a comprehensive child care bill. Uh, but there were other advocates too. Marion Wright Elden, Edelman, for instance, um, was a longstanding child care advocate and had also um, lobbied on this issue. Uh, and so, you know, this was a really comprehensive grassroots effort to get child care um, onto the national agenda and then passed um, through, you know, both the um, House of Representatives and the Senate, only to be vetoed by uh, Nixon. Uh, so that was a very devastating um, loss. And I think that it's important for us when we're thinking about legal feminism in the 1970s to really evaluate the losses as much as the gains Mm. in in the legal uh, infrastructure at the time. And so, you know, this is one area that we can really see the the longstanding impact uh, on on our workplace uh, in terms of equal pay for equal work, in terms of the feminization of poverty. Mm-hmm. Um, and the level of, you know, college educated women who have, who opt out because they're weighing the childcare costs against their, um, you know, the take home pay that they would have. Uh, and I think that this is, you know, Bella Abzug saw this inequity, um, developing. She saw, uh, this happening as more and more women came into the workforce, um, during and after World War II and really wanted our nation to model itself after some of the social democratic states that she really um, idealized uh, from Scandinavian nations to her beloved Israel. Right. Um, and, and I appreciate your emphasis on, you know, the failures as well as the accomplishments. I mean, one of the 
um, things also that did not ultimately succeed or was ratified was the Equal Rights Amendment, of course. And, um, you know, I, there's a, a this FX uh, miniseries, Mrs. America, and I want, I hope everyone reads your great op-ed in the Washington Post about what the show, uh, you know, misses and what it gets right um, about Bella Abzug's role. It really looks at this ERA battle and it focuses on this rise of a, a new right that was led in many ways by these foot soldiers of, of Phyllis Schlafly um, and this, this political realignment that um, emerged at that moment. Um, and I, and I want to sort of jump forward now to look at um, you know, the, the lasting role that Abzug played in terms of establishing a role for women in politics, but also the fact that we still have so much work to do there. So, you know, you talk about the, well, in addition to the constant challenges she faced um, as a trailblazer and the sexism she was constantly experiencing, she, she um, nonetheless worked tirelessly to bring women into politics. She founded the National Women's Political Caucus um, which really worked to, to help women come into political office and especially into democratic politics. Um, in 1971, that caucus predicted that half of the members of Congress would be women by 2020. And today there are 26 women in the U.S. Senate, so 26%, and women are 23.2% uh, of U.S. representatives. Why do you think political change has happened so slowly here? Yeah, that's a really great question. Um, you know, I do think going back to Mrs. America that uh, it's really great that Hollywood is starting to uh, draw focus to the period of the 1970s and re, um, you know, reintroduce this period that was so pivotal, um, you know, for women. Um, I have heard from activists involved in NOW and the National Women's Political Caucus and other organizations that they are upset about the lopsided treatment in the show and feel that the grassroots or energy of feminists is not being equally portrayed to the really effective mass mobilization of Schlafly's yeah. doctor and Eagle Forum followers. Yes, absolutely. I've heard that too. It's almost like we need another version of the show that now goes into the feminist grassroots work. Yeah, exactly. I'm hoping that, um, I really think the show invites Hollywood to create fuller portraits of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s. And I think that I've been hearing a few, um, you know, buzzes for that potentially happening. But what we can see uh, through the show you know, on the one hand is that, uh, you know, as we've pushed for gender parity, there really is this ideologically diverse, um, you know, group of American women. And we have to be mindful that, um, you know, parity does not uh, strongly uh, move directly towards a progressive, you know, future as some feminists, I think, um, you know, perhaps naively, you know, suggest. We can also see, I think, that a lot of um, the issues of the 60s and 70s are unresolved. And so why do we have the, you know, Me Too movement, for instance? Um, well, clearly, you know, uh, women in the 1970s named sexual harassment and brought it to attention, but they didn't uh, wipe out all of the structural and cultural, um, you know, kind of barriers and, and discriminatory practices that allow it to persist. So we still need family leave policies. We, we have to um, deal with poverty, um, you know, criminal, feminized poverty, criminal justice, policing, etc. So the 70s um, is often seen as an era of limits, um, but also I think it's a really expansive protest movement that we can draw focus back to as well. So to your question on, um, you know, why has political change happened so slowly? Uh, well, you know, I think that um, what we're seeing is that 
the suffrage, especially in the suffrage centennial, we can focus on how the voting power that was achieved did not easily equate to political power. And so for much of the 20th century, um, the numbers of women coming into Congress really only um, jumped every midterm from one or two to at most 4%. Mm. Here's another sober reality. There were less women in Congress at the end of the 1970s than there were at the beginning of the mm. 1960s. So this is not always a forward march. Um, you know, and I think that um, political power has been very reluctantly conveyed. Um, and actually, there's a collection that I um, co-edited with Stacey Toronto that's coming out this summer with Johns Hopkins Press called Suffrage at 100 and about 20 plus historians are commenting on and thinking about how um, we shift from voting power to political power and the implications of um, the slow march and uneven path to political power that has occurred since 1920. Uh, so we really make the case in our introduction that the U.S. has and still favors a male political leadership ideal. So when we close our eyes at night and we imagine the president, we do not imagine um, you know, the incredible range of candidates um, that we saw in the Democratic primaries. Our default still is male leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and so we can't see a woman pass the VP position, which is, you know, a second in command. Um, and we've really, I think, uh, pigeonholed women in politics into the domain of women's issues. And so uh, this is the catch-22 for women. They use maternalism as a wedge into electoral politics, but it stifled their ability to break out of this mold. And by maternalism for people who may not know that term? Yeah, so thinking about issues of um, mother motherhood issues, um, caring about our children, thinking about education, thinking about issues that are deemed, um, you know, feminine mm -hmm. uh, in our politics um, versus foreign affairs, which is, you know, kind of traditionally seen as a male domain. Um, and so we're, you know, I think uh, needing to really think about that. Um, you know, what lessons could Bella Abzug offer? Um, you know, this was, she was very interested in having women be, be seen holistically as candidates. And so for her, ending the Vietnam War is, was the end-all be-all issue. In fact, she, some of her staffers would get annoyed with her because she would pr prioritize that over what they saw it as women's rights, you know, should be the priority. Um, so she would have, you know, kind of some scuffles with with uh, staff because she felt that the umbrella issue was ending the Vietnam War. Um, so this holistic candidacy and really trying to present women outside the the narrowing um, space of women's issues was really important to her. Um, she would also want to cultivate uh, women um, in every aspect of the political arena. And so you know, she was one of the co-founders, as you mentioned, of the National Women's Political Caucus, and there really wasn't any organization like that until uh, 1971. And so now we have like Emily's List, and She Should Run, and all of these different organizations that cultivate, uh, you know, women as candidates. But uh, Bella Abzug's, I, you know, really, once she got into, into politics, once she campaigned for the first time, realized how unequal the infrastructure was in supporting, uh, you know, uh, women patronizing, um, or sorry, providing patronage to, to women um, as, you know, potential candidates. And so the fundraising schemes, the um, mentoring schemes in the two major, you know, the Democratic and the Republican Party were just not available to women. So the National Women's Political Caucus, you know, created that infrastructure. And so anyways, Bella Abzug would certainly tell 
women to keep running, but to keep building and cultivating these, these infrastructures um, to channel women into politics, to make them prepared for uh, the political stage. Uh, you know, I think we're making headway in politics where um, we have strong movement leaders, we have strong change makers, um, but she would want to also have us continue to be adept, crafty operators at the grassroots level too. Uh, she studied structures and rules of institutions so that she would know how best to navigate, bend, and break them. Mm. She was also a great communicator, using media and her voice to her advantage. I mean, she had difficulties uh, in the press for sure, hurtful, slanderous coverage, but she also strongly championed the freedom of the press. And she believed in public dissent and watchdog oversight um, as essential mechanisms of democracy. So she, her vision was beyond gender. Um, it was really about a full, um, represent, representative, open, just, transparent democracy. Um, and putting Again, also relevant for this particular moment we're in. Yeah. yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, absolutely. And I think as a biographer, one of my big interests, um, you know, is thinking about how did she frame her political philosophy? What kinds of tactics did she use? Um, what, you know, what worked, what didn't? Um, you know, how do you make that shift from, as she, you know, as she saw it, bringing protest to power? I feel like um, those are timeless concerns for social movement activists, and I think that it's important for us as historians to provide these stories um, as as a really a usable past. Um, Absolutely. I mean, I really appreciate your underscoring the work that trailblazing work she did with the National Women's Political Caucus in terms of you know fundraising and laying institutional groundwork for those really important organizations like Emily's List. Um, and just the sort of plotting behind the scenes work that's necessary to get women into political office, but also the real breadth of, of her vision um, that incorporated, as you have talked about before, and not just you know gender politics and feminism, but issues around sexuality, uh, around LGBTQ rights, around um, anti-racism, uh, ending the Vietnam War, and also these bigger structural issues of how you bring protest and to politics. Um, so to as a sort of concluding question, you know, you've talked about what lessons we can learn. Wondered if you could um, expand a little bit on, you know, this moment when we are seeing this erosion of democratic principles, erosion of freedom of the press, uh, resurgence of, of uh, white supremacist activism and policies, um, anti-immigration, anti-LGBTQ, anti-feminist um, politics and policies, as well as a real renewed resurgence in protest and a pushing of the Democratic Party, you know, from the left with these people, um, with, especially with women in Congress. Uh, so how do you think Abzug would respond to this moment and, and what words of advice might she have for us? Yeah, I mean, you know, I started this book in the early 2000s, as I said, and so it's kind of seen multiple administrations from the Bush years through Obama and now this Trump era. Right. And so it's kind of, it's been very interesting to think about the different modes in Bella Abzig's life that speak to, you know, all kinds of different times. One area of her work that I think gets really undervalued and in my opinion is, is one of her biggest contributions is the area of civil liberties. And so she, you know, defended a lot of people that were caught up in the McCarthy um, anti-communist um, probes 
and were, you know, unionists and racial minorities and um, political dissenters, immigrants, women, uh, you know, who were deemed un-American in that time period. And she really came back to that work um, when she was in Congress during the and during and after the Watergate scandal. And she was one of the early voices in Congress demanding um, the impeachment of President Richard Nixon. And so, especially during our recent impeachment, that really came back to me, um, you know, and thinking about that work. And so she uh, ran as a chairwoman, um, the Committee of the Government Information and Individual Rights. And basically, they oversaw the implementation of the Freedom of Information and Privacy Act. So in the mid-1970s, uh, really building on the momentum of the Watergate scandal unfolding, uh, you know, Congress passed a Privacy Act for the first time and also added teeth to the Freedom of Information um, Acts that, you know, first were um, established in the 1960s. And so these laws were still in their infancy. And essentially the ABSEC committee, so she had a lot of legal staff, taught Americans how to file document requests with agencies under these two acts. And we now think about FOIA requests as a basic tool of democracy that lawyers use, that average Americans use, that the press uses. So I think that's a really important kind of not flashy, um, you know, uh, contribution. And, you know, thinking about Americans' privacy rights and the rights right to know or um, bringing truth to power, I think is something that we absolutely have to focus on in this particular moment. Um, you know, the levels of surveillance, the, diff the um, focus on uh, new technologies, um, you know, I think that this, you know, this element of, of her work is something to really um, hone in on. Additionally, the uh, new politics moment of the late 60s and early 70s, so there was an insurgent democratic um, force within, con within um, the Democratic Party to bring movement activism, uh, movement energy into the Democratic Party and to basically challenge the establishment at that time, which was Cold War liberals and Southern Democrats. And I think that um, because we focus so much on a conservative ascendancy from the 1970s forward, we forget that actually there was a progressive force that was very strong in the late 60s and early 70s and shifted the agenda um, and changed the look, the face of the Democratic Party by de democratizing it. Um, and we're back there again. Thank you. That's a very hopeful uh, note on which to conclude. But I really want to uh, thank you for drawing our attention to this issue of government accountability and transparency. I found that section where you talk about her role with um, behind the Freedom of Information Act to be such a fascinating part of your book and um, um, want to just re reinforce again what a fabulous biography this is and one that is so vital to read right now with all of these issues that we've been talking about today being front and center. Um, so thank you so much, Professor Zarnell, for your time. It was great to talk with you. Um, then and Now is a production of the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy with support from the UCLA History Department. It can be found on Spotify and Apple Podcast. Let us know your thoughts on this or other episodes of Then and Now by emailing us at luskincenter at history.ucla.edu. Special thanks to our executive producer, Maya Ferdman, and to David Myers, the director of the Luskin Center for History and Policy. And special thanks again to Leandra Zarnow, uh, author of Battling Bella, The Protest Politics of Bella Abzug with Harvard University Press. Thanks for having me. Thank you.
Thank you for joining us this week on Then and Now. Then and Now is brought to you by the UCLA Luskin Center for History and Policy, where we study change to make change. For more on our work, follow us on Twitter and Facebook at our handle, at Luskin History. Our show is produced by Maya Ferdman and David Myers, with original music by Daniel Reichman. Special thanks to the UCLA History Department for its support, and thanks to you for listening.